Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn. Joined as I am each week by media executive Grail Hallett and OTB producer Sam Griswold. Well, I'm getting ready for my cross-country trip for my big Hollywood movie. I have five lines, guys, in this movie with Zac Efron. And, uh, Don't screw it up. They fly you out first class. They put you up. I'm like, for five lines? It's unbelievable. Just remember my soccer career in the back of a van, you know, <laughs> driving six hours for a, a one-hour game. So anyway, our guest on the show today, I'm very excited about it. Former uh, U.S. men's national team player, former coach, former soccer broadcaster for ESPN, ABC, TNT. Uh, he's broadcasted four Olympics. An old friend of mine, no, but he's not old. Uh, he's, he's my friend. Ty Keo is going to join us in just a little bit. Now, Ty and I worked together back on the World Cup for ESPN back in the day, 1994. And a lot has changed in that time. So it'll be great to get caught up with him. Uh, Ty was really good to me. Uh, he helped me out, kind of took me under his wing a little bit and talked me through some of the things I needed to learn in the broadcast industry, many of which most would argue that I have never, in fact, learned. But uh, I was working as a full-time stand-up comic back in the day there um, when I put a short promo reel together of scoring a couple goals in the indoor league and then my stand-up comedy special. So uh, I sent it off to ESPN. I heard back from them. Suddenly, I'm standing uh, with uh, Ty Q and Bob Lee and Seamus Mallon. And I was just in heaven because I had been watching those guys for so long, covering this game that we love. And boy, uh, we'll talk to Ty about this, but that 1994 World Cup was an absolute just dream come true for all of us. And I felt like as being on that broadcasting team with these greats, uh, the guys who had really been working at it for a long time and keeping it alive in this country, felt like there was so much pressure for us to to be good PR advocates for this game because we wanted it to succeed so badly. So in many ways, it, it looks like it works. So, uh, so guys, before we get Ty in here, uh, let me ask you quickly, what are you over today on over the ball? Uh, Sam. Uh, okay. I'm over, and this is kind of going to be a little bit roundabout, but I'm over the fourth official. Um, I want to know what the point is of having another ref on the sideline whose role is essentially just to get yelled at by the coaches and players on the bench. Uh, and my solution uh, and sort of question that I want to put out there to this is why don't they add another ref to the field? I mean, I know that fourth official is actually the backup ref, but I I don't know, just with all the scrutiny that's on officiating in soccer, I mean, it's such a hard job for one person to do. When you look at other sports, you know, watching playoff baseball the last month or so, there's six umpires on the field. The NFL has seven referees. The NHL has four. You know, soccer has the same number as basketball, right, with three, yet it's played on a surface uh, about 10 times as large and yeah. with more than twice as many people. So, you know, being a ref is, again, such a thankless and almost impossible job. I wonder why not create, you know, a little solidarity, make it a little easier for them, and perhaps keep a few more of the uh, decisions on the field as opposed to going to the VAR by adding a second ref. First of all, I would never referee in a million years. Uh, I have ADD. I wear glasses. There's just no way. I just, I, my mind drifts. But that guy on the sidelines in between both coaches is the most miserable place to be because yeah. drawn at him the whole time. So I will say, Sam, they're starting to get more help, uh, you know, with like VAR. I think it's interesting with the penalty kicks, sort of the, the referee was the, the only arbiter at the time, you know, when we played and now he can actually look at the players and goes, look, we're, we're checking the VAR. We're checking yeah. the VAR. And it, it makes the players sort of cool off and back off a little bit. Yeah. I'm going to push back a little bit too. I like one ref. I know, Sam, I agree with everything you've said about it. It's thankless. It's a tough job, all that. But I've got to tell you, I think VAR thus far this season has been fantastic in the Premier League. They've gotten almost everything right. They're fine-tuning it. I think it's doing what it was meant to do when it started a few years ago. So so I'm still good with I'm still good with one. But I hear you about the fourth guy. I just feel sorry for him, frankly. All right. What are you over, uh, Grail? So I'm just over Pep's uh, Pep Guardiola's refusal to ever acknowledge when City doesn't play up to their own standards. And I saw his post-match interview after they lost to Crystal Palace 2-0 at home. By any measure, they did not play the way they're used to playing. They were just slightly off. Even De Bruyne had a bad match. And in the post-game interview, Pep's like, yeah, you know, we did enough good things to win the game whenever. I mean, <laughs> they had a guy set off. They had two defensive mistakes. I mean, I don't know why it's, if it's insecurity or whatever it is. I just wish Pep Cation would say, you know what? 
not up to our standards. We'll do better next time. He just, well, he is incapable of saying that. Well, and, and conversely, you look at uh, uh, Mourinho always shits on his players. So yeah. I don't know what's better. I mean, I guess you just sort of say, I'll talk to the guys, not publicly. I'll talk to them in the locker room. So yeah, you I, don't I, have I to call out guys. Yeah. And I'm not saying call out, you know, Laporte because he had a miserable game. Just say collectively, we did not play up to our standards. All right. So we're all amateurs here. Let's, let's bring in the real guy who's, uh, who's pretty much done it all uh, in, in soccer in this country. Uh, I got to tell you, if you do not know who this man is, you should know who he is because uh, he was basically country before country was cool. He was a great player in college for uh, the legendary St. Louis teams, which, by the way, we got to talk about because they just uh, had an undefeated season. Uh, his father is the the legendary um, Harry Keough and um, player, coach, broadcaster and friend Ty Keough. Ty, welcome to Over the Ball, pal. How are you? Kevin, fantastic. Great to see you after uh, quite a bit of time here. And uh, I know. And we've got some good topics, I'm sure, that we'll be talking about and some reminiscing as well. Well, you know, it's funny, Ty, when uh, I was on site with you a couple of times and we went for a couple of runs and I told this to some people and I said, we went for a jog. And the next day I woke up, I said, hey, Ty, do you want to um, you want to run? And you go two days in a row? No, no. One day on, one day off. I like, go, oh, he's. He's smart. So you're a couple of years old, uh, older than me. So then by the time I got a little older, I'm like, hey, I understand what he was talking about. Yeah, just. Yeah. Why use up your joints any earlier than you have to? Hey, so, Ty, you know, your father coached at St. Louis for all those years. And I remember all those players that came out of the St. Louis area. Um, and now this St. Louis team has actually done very, very well. Um and it's all an American team, which I think is kind of going against the grain of what's happening in college soccer right now. Talk a little bit about, because you've told me over a beer about this, but why St. Louis was such a hotbed. I'm sure your father had a big part to do with it, but also and how it, it produced so many great players. And, and talk about the team now. Well, it goes back farther, really, than, uh, than what you just mentioned in terms of some people call St. Louis the cradle of U.S. soccer, because uh, it goes back to the early 1900s, basically. And, and you want to talk about soccer privilege? Uh, obviously, the influence of all the great players around me, the players that came before me here in St. Louis was massive, but my kindergarten coaches were uh, Frank Borgie and Harry Keough. Wow. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. And because uh, Frank had a son the same age as me, Chuck Borges. So, uh, yeah, I had that. Uh, I grew up watching uh, the, the great St. Louis U teams as they won uh, 10 of the first 15 NCAA Division One championship, championships. Uh, Bob Gelker started the program. He moved to SIU Edwardsville. My dad took over. They each won five. Uh, so uh, just what a tremendous run. And it's just uh, yeah, it's just a real tribute, I think, of the traditions here in St. Louis. And then that goes even to guys like Brad Davis, who was playing in recent World Cups for the U.S. team. Mike Sorber, uh, Bora Militinovich uh, told me he thought Mike Sorber was the best U.S. player in the 94 World Cup. And Sorber played at St. Louis University as, as well. Uh, but if you want to really go back to the roots, uh, it comes down to much of St. Louis's uh, population growth occurred in the early 1900s. Irish, Italians, Germans, working class, uh, many of them Catholic. So they, in their parishes, as it turned out, uh, they wanted obviously an activity uh, for, for the kids at the schools. At this time, it would have been only boys, obviously, just because that's, uh, that's how society was. But uh, many of the teachers at the Catholic parish schools were either brothers, from England, some of them were Irish. Uh, so they knew the game a little bit. They also realized that all you need is a ball and a shirt, basically, and obviously posts, because uh, they couldn't afford to build gymnasiums for basketball. They couldn't afford pads and helmets for football teams. They said, hey, get some shirts, get a ball. And so almost every kid in a pretty, one of the most Catholic cities uh, in the United States, every kid grew up playing about four, five, six months of soccer, four, five, six months of baseball. That was just how it was done. Those were the cheap sports to play. And suddenly there were generations of American-born players who started to dominate in U.S. soccer. Uh, yeah, you guys were the tops. And then it also explains why 
Anheuser Busch was such a great sponsor of soccer for so long. I remember, you know, all those years. It must have been because it being the cradle, and that was a big part of uh, the St. Louis area. Well, it was largely uh, a gentleman named Dennis Long, Denny Long. Oh yeah, who grew up in the little Irish patch uh, neighborhood on South Broadway here in St. Louis, not too far from from where my grandfather uh, grew up. Uh, Denny Long. Uh, came up to be the CEO of Anheuser-Busch in those years. He loved the sport. Uh, he had a vision. He was very successful as a businessman. He had a vision of spreading Budweiser worldwide. And how do you do that? Through soccer. Okay, wow. uh, so when he was inducted to the National Soccer Hall of Fame, I wrote him a little bit note. It was the same year that Pelé was inducted into the National Soccer Hall of Fame. And the note to Denny Long uh, for me was, obviously, he did so much for soccer in this country and especially in St. Louis. But I said to him, you know, most people don't realize this, but you, Mr. Long, had probably more to do with the growth and development of soccer here in the United States than Pelé. And the fact is, is because there were the 90 World Cup, the first World Cup that the U.S. qualified for in after a 40-year period from 1950 to 1990, at that time, U.S. soccer could only get three sponsors. So the three sponsors were Chiquita, Banana, Adidas, and Anheuser-Busch. Or yeah, uh-huh. so those, those are the ones that kept it alive uh, when soccer was still kind of in the wilderness. And, uh, and look, look what's happened now. Well, I always did my part when I went to a pub, that's for sure. <laughs> I, would order, I would order Budweiser. Grail? Uh, Ty, thanks for joining us. I'm just curious. You you had a unique situation where you played you played for your dad at St. Louis University from '75 to '78. I'm just curious. You know, describe that experience because I you know I coached my son in travel soccer, which right. I knew the complexities of that. But what, when you get to college, I mean, that's a whole different ballgame. How how did that work in terms of your relationship? And his father's Harry Keough. I mean, dude, that's even more pressure. Yeah. Well, there's there, there's two things, and it, and it was the top soccer program in the United States at that yeah. time, or, or certainly in the top two or two or three. So yeah, there's there's a fair amount of pressure that goes with all all of that, uh, and 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 I'll mention two things. Uh, one, it was a big time motivator for me because I wanted people to be able to recognize almost instantaneously the reason I was out on the field. Right. So I would work extra hard. I mm-hmm. would be the most one of the most disciplined guys, and I, I tried to make sure that if you were watching the game, you could almost immediately tell I was one of the best three or four players on the St. Louis University team. You're a a four-time All-American, Ty. Right. So that that takes a little bit of the pressure off. And everybody goes, well, he's he's the coach's kid, blah, blah, blah. You know, wonder he's playing, blah, blah, blah. Well, look, you look at it, you know, hey, again, he was one of the top three or four players uh, on the field for that particular team. And uh, so it it was just pushed me that much harder because you don't want to hear, you know, the echoes and that sort of thing, which reminds me uh, of a situation where Bob Bradley was in that same situation with his son. And and he was asked, uh, you know, to justify, you know, why his son was starting all the time. And, and he, and I heard this press conference and, uh, and he was sort of like, he was more or less talking sideways. He couldn't, you know, really make his point. He was trying to make an excuse or, you know, why Michael Bradley was, had the armband or why he was playing so much. And it, it reminded me of my dad's someone uh, asked him one time, Hey, Hey, uh, you know, Harry, there's a few other midfielders on your St. Louis U team. They're, that are as, as good as Ty and they don't, they don't play as much. And Harry goes, they have to be better. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> well, that's like, that's a, that's a little humor. My grandmother would call it a joke of the jag. I like that. <laughs> well, you know, Ty, it's tough being the coach's son because yeah. you're exposed to all that great coaching and you're and exposed to all that great play. But the other thing is guys are make taking runs at you guys are saying things, but obviously you've, overcame that quite a bit because once you get out in the field there's nowhere to run nowhere to hide right um, it, it helped Dan- to you know be able to see you know more than 180 i, I sort of had eyes in the back yeah. of my head from being a midfielder and mm-hmm. and, and i think <laughs> yeah. uh, and you know you, you know when it's coming i mean basically you don't want to jump or you know you know, you know yeah when to go when to go over the ball exactly <laughs> exactly like your well, which is, here's a quick story 
Gene Geimer, who played for the U.S. national team and played for St. Louis University, is roughly nine years older than me. So when I turned pro uh, in December of 78 to play indoor for the Cincinnati Kids, which was owned by oh, yeah. uh, 10 guys, two of which uh, were Pete Rose and Johnny Bench. Was, oh, that, that's a whole nother. Uh, uh, I want to hear that story over yeah, a beer yeah. someday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Gene Geimer's already been a pro for nine years, basically. Right. And he's playing for the Cincinnati Kids. And and he's respected my dad. He knew me since I was a kid. I was always around the practices when he was playing college. And, and he takes me aside. He goes, you know, Ty, you've got a big name. You're on the Olympic team. There's going to be certain guys come after you, right? And he, you know, like I said, he'd been a pro for nine years. He says, here's what you do. You, you be aware of the fact that some of these guys will come in over the ball. Just make sure you come in a half an inch higher. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And then everything's a, a, a scratch. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Sam? Yeah. Uh, Ty, just sticking with the NCAA game a little bit, you have a lot of experience, obviously, as a player and as a coach uh, at Wash U. I'm curious how, how much you still keep up with it and what you make of the kind of evolution that's gotten us to where we are today. Well, it's, it's changed a lot. Obviously, there's a lot of great teams. There's many more quality players. Uh, there's probably an overabundance, I think, of relying on foreign talent. It's the quick fix. Uh, sure. mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there are guys, I, I think, that are being overlooked that are U.S. developed uh, and, and they given a chance they might do as well or better than the foreign player. Uh, but again, I see these coaches, you know, they, they know they have to create a product on the field and a record uh, that their athletic director is uh, really investing in. And so they look, they go for the quick fix. And, uh, and I think it's to the detriment of the development of, of U.S. players. You know, it's odd though, Ty, because I remember I used to root for the St. Louis teams uh, as, for SLU because they had a lot of American players and UConn, they had a lot of American players. We sort of took pride in that. And I mean, at Clemson at the time, I remember there wasn't a single American on the team and then something changed. Then there were a lot of American players on there uh, through what the nineties, the two thousands. And now it just seems to have recently, maybe the last five, six years, uh, it's swung back to, uh, to foreigners, a lot, a lot of foreigners coming, you know, getting college scholarships because you get an education. So I don't know what that's from or why that is. And I don't even know what to think about it. I just know it's going to probably hurt the development of an American player. Oh, there's no question. I mean, if you talk about, uh, uh, guys that are 16, 17 years old want to get a chance to play some college ball. Uh, if the college coach isn't even in this time zone or in this hemisphere, how are you going to show for him? He's yeah. over there recruiting uh, in England or he's, he's over there in Scandinavia or, yeah. or Denmark or Germany or whatever. So it's uh, to me, it's it's way overdone, but you see the mechanics of it. It's, it's the coach, the pressure on the coaches to win right away. And he's like, well, I'll go find some players you know, that are maybe slightly more polished, uh, maybe have been a part of a culture, which gives them a little bit of an edge uh, initially. But uh, yeah, I, I do think there are U.S. players being overlooked. Yeah. And I, I also think, you know, that you come here and it's difficult because the American situation has been classically, you play a lot of sports and you play a lot of things. Like I would, I would almost guarantee you were a very good baseball player. It's just the way it works. Right. And so some uh, Yeah. But I figured out when I was like in seventh grade that, uh, and, and I was always small for my age and, and some of these big pitchers start throwing curveballs and stuff <laughs> like that. <laughs> I, think, uh, I was still playing a lot of street hockey, ice hockey and soccer. But uh, I was done. I was done with baseball. Yeah. Uh, well, I think, you know, you got to, they all, all these kids pick a sport pretty early now anyway. Uh, yeah. I was you know? like about, th about 13 and I decided, Hey, and I even swam competitively way back. Uh, but uh, my dad, by the way, was on the 1945 Missouri state swimming championship team at Cleveland high school. So, and he was a lifeguard in high school. And so, yeah. So he, some of his buddies used to call him fish because he was that good in the water. So. Well, when they told me I had to wear a Speedo, that was the end of my season. <laughs> yeah, I said, I'm done. Grail? Yeah, so Ty, you, play, you played uh, in the NASL for the uh, San Diego Soccers, and then you ended up playing indoors after that for the St. Louis Steamers. I'm just curious, which, which game did you prefer, the outdoor game or the indoor game? Well, I would say overall the outdoor game because – it's the world's game. So, mm, yeah. I knew that. And I'll get into how I, I, I really knew that more than most besides, you know, my, my dad, you know, having his background. Uh, but uh, 
Indoor was fantastic in that it gave American players a chance. Mm-hmm. Indoor paid more money, believe it or not, than the outdoor league for an American player. American, yeah. Um, yeah. And so really, uh, if you read between the lines there, Grail, I, I literally double dipped the first four years of my pro career. I'd play indoor in the winters and make pretty, pretty good money play the whole summer in San Diego, which that was tough assignment, right? Oh, in San man. Diego I envy you, yeah. envy you there. And, uh, and so uh, I was able more or less to double my income, which was fantastic. Uh, and really I had the best of both worlds. So for four seasons, I was playing indoor in the winters, outdoor uh, with San Diego in the summers. And what it allowed for uh, obviously a lot of wear and tear on my joints because playing indoor was on a very hard surface, mm. but yeah. uh Here's the difference, because on the indoor team, because it, uh, the indoor league, a major indoor soccer league, really did emphasize American players. I was one of the team leaders on my indoor teams. I, I normally was the top assist guy. Uh, I was normally one of the you know, three, four, five guys that you know that everybody knew made things happen on the field, and, the ball, and I got a lot of the ball. Uh, and But when I was playing outdoor in San Diego, I'm playing – I'll give you a for instance. In 1981 – we, we actually, I think, I believe we won the Western division of the NASL three out of the four years I was out there, but in 81 was definitely one of them. And uh, they picked three of us to the all North American side of, of all the NASL teams. And it was Julie V. It was, that's a whole nother story. Wow. Julie V was born in Hungary and defected when he was about 18 or 19. Uh, so yeah, he's, he's not American born, but you know, he, he came over he's pretty young enough. And then yeah, Mike, yeah. Stoyan- Mike Stoyanovic, who was a Canadian citizen who had married a Canadian woman, and he was actually uh, a Serbian. Uh, so he, he he did the quick work of becoming an American. So so really, uh, the three of us. <laughs> You're in, only in two American. <laughs> well, the, the the North American Soccer League, also known as the non-American Soccer League, <laughs> yeah. uh, required three Americans or three North Americans on the field uh, at all times in 81. And so it was Stoyanovic, who was born in uh, Serbia. Julie V, who was born in Hungary, and myself, who was born in South St. Louis. And uh, so one time we're, we're playing and uh, we're discussing after the game, actually, and and we're talking about the opponents and, and Julie V, who was a character, he says, oh, you know, Americans are useless. None of them can play. But and I, and I do all of his donkey work on the field. I give him the ball a lot. Right, uh, right. Because I was starting for San Diego. And, he, and I go, hey, wait a minute, Julie. I go, hey, I'm American. And I'm kind of calling him out because I, I do, like I said, I give him the ball a lot. Yeah, and I was a, a decent passer, right? I gave him good right. passes, and uh, and he could dribble. But he he goes, no, you're not American. Your mom's from Mexico. Uh, so, <laughs> I don't know what born, that means. Well, <laughs> my mom was born. My mom was born in St. Louis, but her parents were from Mexico. But for whatever reason, he said, I guess that he thought that was the explanation that I could play in these other Americans. <laughs> well, it shows you back then what American players had to deal with because you'd show up somewhere and it, you, were, you were like a foreigner in your own country. And, you know, Ty, your name, you know, everybody knew who you were, a young American player. So you're yeah. uh, someone we sort of, uh, you know, idolized and thought, okay, it's possible. Um, and then you, you start to hear some of the stories and it's like, wow, I mean, how you actually carved out a career. Uh, you know, the hard part time is learning how to play at that level, which you did and yeah. you do well at it, but it's, it's getting that first chance. Well, and the difference I had played essentially midfield, my entire youth soccer, as well as college soccer center mm-hmm. midfield, you know, playmaker basically. And uh, suddenly when you get to the NASL, well, they've got big shot foreign guys, Kaz mm-hmm. Dana, uh, Leonardo Cuellar. Uh, we also had Hugo Sanchez playing up front for San Diego uh, before he went to Spain. And, uh, you know, they say, oh, by the way, you're going to play right back. Right. Uh, and as it turns out, I mean, it takes you maybe six, ten games to kind of figure out a new position. I'd never played wing back in my life. Now I'm a wing back. And as it turns out, I nailed down a starting position for four seasons in San Diego because I have a pretty good left foot, even though I'm right-footed. And they need they needed a left left back because the one uh, I believe it was eighty my second year out there on the bench with Doc Losh and Dave Dorico, uh, and at least mm-hmm. one other American guy who who had played wing back their entire lives. Uh, so I, I was like, well, I can moan and say I really want to play midfield, and then just put me on the bench and I'll put one of those guys out there, uh, or I could just get the job done. So the, the first get time the, get on the field is what we want. Right? Well, and, and 
uh, Hubert Vogelsinger, who you know the name because he coached at Yale for years, yeah. was the San Diego San Diego coach when I got out there. And uh, when he got fired, there was an interim coach named Hank Leotard who had played for the U.S. men's national team. Uh, he was Dutch, but I, I'm not sure exactly where he was. But he let me play midfield for six games in a row when he was the interim coach. We won four of them, and I think uh, maybe lost one of them on the shootout because back that was back in the shootout days. And uh, so I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. But now I'm a center midfielder in the NASL, right? Wow. And we're winning. And we're winning. And they go uh, – so Ron Newman got hired as our full-time coach. He brings a forward, Manu Sanon, the Haitian sensation, uh, with him from Fort Lauderdale. And his first conversation with me is, well, Ty uh, – I know you've been playing midfield the last uh, six matches, but uh, I need I need you to do a job for me tonight. I need you to mark Steve Wegerly. I don't know if you remember Wegerly. He Cosmos, goes, yeah. Yeah, he great. Wheels, man. This is when he was with still with the Rowdies, the Tampa Bay Rowdies. Yeah, big-time wheels. And uh, so I'm like – I was like, do I play really bad so I never have to play wingback again? <laughs> uh, or do I just kick butt oh, so that I, I, I keep playing, right? So I just said, I better play because I, I saw Tariko uh, Lawson, a couple other U, U.S. guys that can play wing back. And I said, all right. So Wagerly probably uh, notoriously didn't play very well on the road. So this was a game in San Diego. So it, it gave me a little bit of an edge, baby. I kicked him so many times. Uh, I Every time he touched the ball, I got a piece of him. I kicked him one time when he was out of bounds. And, you know, it's, it's like, but. I then was the starting back for San Diego for the next three seasons. That was it. You got it. And I tell you something, going from center of the pitch to out wide, it's, you feel so exposed. You're like, Oh, oh yeah, it's, it's all, yeah, it's a lot of one-on-one. And I, and I got really pretty adept at closing guys down, just making sure that they played the ball back or sideways or worst case scenario, I give up corner kicks. I give up mm -hmm. corner kicks. You know, yeah. and I was, don't let the guy get behind you when you're yeah. with him. Back or square, you did your job. So, all right, let's 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 switch to your broadcasting career. So, you're you're this marquee player that you know, most American kids know uh, about. I remember it was like you and uh, Mooch Meyernick and uh, Ricky Davis, who we had on last week. Then uh, you go into broadcasting, and um, you, you're you're a broadcaster. You you know four four World Cups. Talk about that transition. Well, I started uh, working indoor games here locally with JP Della Camera. Uh, what a great guy. Uh, he'd been yeah. hired by Denny Long, by, by Bud, Bud Sports was a division of Anheuser-Busch or, or Budweiser. Mm -hmm. and, and they were the production company for all the broadcasts. So they they liked having a, an ex-athlete, a, a, a guy who had just been playing pro in, in, the, in the booth. So the way I tell it to somebody, and, and don't don't take this too far, but JP taught me a lot about broadcasting. And, and so did Lou Renoni, one of our producers. But uh, uh, And I... I tried to help JP as much as I could because he didn't really play soccer growing up. He grew up in Boston. He knew ice hockey. His dream, in fact, was be to become uh, the Bruins play-by-play -play announcer. Uh, yeah. well, he grew up during the Bobby Moore era. So you had oh, no Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 So anyway, J JP and I did a lot of indoor games. And then Seamus Mallon was not available for certain games on the national package because uh, ESPN was showing a game of the week of major indoor soccer major indoor soccer league. And uh, so I would fill in when Seamus had a conflict and, and, and started working more national games as well with ESPN. Uh, so that gradually morphed. JP helped me a lot because uh, he would say, hey, Ty knows what he's talking about. He, he knows how to use the talk back button. He could, you know, he can analyze a replay. And so, you know, all right. the different elements of being a color commentator or an analyst. And uh, so, you know, if he was getting soccer work, he, he, he'd say, yeah, I want to work with Ty. Uh, so we started doing Marlboro Cups. We started doing uh, there's some great stories all the way along the line with with all this stuff. So I, I really was fortunate in that I did a lot of indoor work, radio and TV, and I started to do outdoor work through JP more or less. And there's about a 17 year period uh, where I worked not all, but probably most of the U.S. men's national team uh, games on television. So I, I count myself very fortunate to be able to stay involved, uh, you know, aside from the four world cups that I worked in, mm -hmm. uh, just to stay involved with the sport, with the U S team at the highest levels. Yeah, it was great. Sam. Yeah. Ty, I'm curious again on, on the evolution of broadcasting in this country, what you make of sort of the, the job we've done. And, uh, you know, again, sometimes the lack of American voices in, in the broadcast booth or, you know, in the studio. And uh, I, again, just where, where we are today in that, in that respect. 
Well, there's that issue uh, in, in terms of whether you have American voices or not. There's also, also the issue, I think, of just the evolution of you got to realize how complex it really is to cover uh, an outdoor game. It's 120 by 75, and you have to have cameramen that have a clue about the sport, like maybe where the ball might be going next. Uh, You have to have tape operators who run the replays to have an idea that you want to see maybe the second pass because it was brilliant. It wasn't really just the final pass or the shot that created the goal. Elements along those lines. It was so hard for me. Uh, because frankly, Bud Sports did a lot of sports. They did, they did a lot of basketball. They did a lot of ice hockey. They did a lot of indoor soccer. And I did a lot of indoor soccer with them. They had experienced people. So when I started broadcasting, and again, it was mostly indoor, I was working with guys that knew what they were doing. All right. So when, when Major League Soccer started in 1996, they didn't have a stable of guys that were directors, tape operators, cameramen, and so forth that really had a clue about soccer. And it was very frustrating to me because I was used to guys that you know, pretty much knew how to run a broadcast, including the director, the producer, the guys that sit in the chair and, and choose which angles, yeah. you know, which which shots you're going to see. And uh, and I will say this: now they've got guys that played college soccer or guys that love the game that are in the trucks doing those roles. So in general, it's a much easier job for the analysts and the play-by-play guy because they've got a better support coming from the truck and in their ear from the truck. Uh, but they also have, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, people that care. I'd walk right. into a TV truck to do a, a men's national team game and they didn't know a single guy on the U S team. Right. So uh, we were building a broadcast from scratch. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so I, I, I kind of envy the current guys because, now they have the support and there is better technical soccer people working in those TV trucks to, to do a proper broadcast. To your other question, I don't, uh, as far as an accent, uh, you know, I, I, I could fake that I have a Spanish accent because yeah, I, yeah. I speak Spanish fluently. That's why you're a good mom. soccer player. Cause you know, <laughs> <laughs> your mom was born. Yeah, in I don't, I don't know. I mean, uh, some people were bamboozled by it. Obviously, you know, some of the, the British announcers are, are very knowledgeable uh, right. and, uh, and, and some of the Hispanic ones are as well. I do have a real gripe with this though. Uh, if you've got a guy on a broadcast whose English is kind of so bad uh, and, and I'm talking generally Hispanic uh, or Sometimes Eastern European guys. Yeah, second language. Second language, basically. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. wait a minute. Get somebody in there who we can understand what they're saying. It, it you know, uh, we're, right. we're trying to be as clear as possible and communicate as well as possible. You know, what our thoughts are on the game, what we think might happen next in the game, and, and you and you you're going. What did he say? What did he say? you know? I mean, come on. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that that to me is where you're way over the line in terms of not using an American voice. You know, and yes, yeah, so this is my beef almost every week, Ty. It really bothers me. Uh, you know, because you talk about. The English apparently are authentic, uh, and then the Hispanic, I guess they're going for that market, but they're watching Telemundo anyway. So I, I just think it's sort of odd. And like you say, certain people, I cannot understand what they're saying, even, even you know, uh, English or Scottish accents. And I, so it's annoying. The other thing, to go back to, to the early games, I remember that. I remember they would, they would cut. Uh, they would cut it poorly on a corner kick or a, or a crossed ball. They wouldn't know how to kind of follow the action. And I remember when I went to work for ESPN, no one was a soccer person. It was someone who was wanted to get into basketball or they wanted to get into NFL or something else. And I was kind of like, Oh man, uh, who can I talk to about the game? That's why you were like, you know, a glass of water after a handful of salt. I was like, there well, you were too. I mean, for me to be able to talk to you, because we're talking the same language. Right. Uh, but but you're right. It, it was that was totally the name of the game. And, and how many times I worked with play by play guys who were basketball guys or baseball yeah. guys or swimming guys because they were just, you know, trying to get dates and trying to make some money and, and try and further their career. They didn't care about soccer. And and, and frankly, I, I got a pretty good uh, reputation of being able to work with those guys and help them with their terminology, even during game, you know, how to kind of correct a guy without really correcting him, you know, by right, using right. exactly the right soccer terminology just after he 
he blew it or three minutes after he blew it. And then he'd go, Oh, you know, and he, he'd follow up. And some of those guys would take me aside and say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cause they were flailing. Right. And, uh, or sometimes they would just point at me, the ball's moving and they would just point at me because they didn't know what, you know, what to say. Next. <laughs> it's called, I mean, it was called the corner kick. Out. It's called the corner kick. Unbelievable. Yeah. But, but I would say this, Ty, what is annoying to me the most is the journey that you had as a player, as an American player in this country, it, it comes across in the broadcast because you are speaking from 30 years of experience and it's an American journey. And I think that that needs to come through. And I think that is what's lost. So we can, we can pivot at this now because it's, it's gotten much better. Um, I, I still hear the foreign voices on there and I miss yours on there, but um Let's talk about the national team because I'm sure there's something you follow uh, constantly. What do you think about uh, about how they look and the progress with the team? The, the depth tie is something I we can't quite figure out some, where all these players are playing sometimes. We used to know every guy. Yeah, yeah, which is a good thing. It's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a really amazingly talented, gifted, exciting, young, attacking team. Okay, so this sets up for, in, in my opinion, in my view, uh, a really difficult challenge for Burhalter because he's got players that are really, really good going forward. They, they play a, a really good style to watch when they're attacking. I'm not sure if they've figured out really uh, how to manage a lead, uh, mm -hmm. how to play on the road. And so Burhold has caught it between. I mean, he makes seven changes between two games. That tells you he doesn't know where to go uh, in, in terms of that. So, so the formula always in CONCACAF to qualify for a World Cup has been, hey, get a point on the road and win at home. Get a point right. on the road, win at home. These guys don't know yet, I don't think, how to get a point on the road. Mm -hmm. they, they go out and they play uh, – one of two ways and, and they're really very good when it's high press high energy uh all attacking because they're they're very gifted talented and they're young uh, and, and experienced a little bit with the finer elements of playing a different style uh so what happens is they kind of blow it on the road sometimes which puts that much more pressure on them when they do come home to make sure that you better get three points because you just got zero points on the road right uh, and that was you know, what happened early in qualifying here. So for me, it's it's something that Berhalter has to figure out because he's got like two different teams and they're a great high pressure team. They're a great attacking team. They got so much so many gifts individually. Uh, they're fun to watch. But if you ask them to play a different style, they haven't figured that out. And, and you know, in, in terms of the solidity of our, our, our center backs, in terms of, you know, just just having the ability to. Now play a little bit defensive. You got a lead on the road. Can you hold that lead? You've, you got that one point on the road and slate. Can you keep that? I, I, they haven't figured that out. Well, you know, also he made seven changes in that one game, which I think, you know, from my experience, when you're on a team, especially like, like I say, the national team, you play, you get your position. You were talking about it when you played for the soccers. Like you wanted to own that position. Someone, you either had to get hurt or someone had to play you out of that position um, to lose it. And it seems like there's so much depth now. It almost seemed like he was showing off a little bit with the depth. And I'm going to use all these fresh players. And it's like, man, as a player, I want to be on the pitch. I want to be on the pitch and I want to have my position. And when someone takes it from me, I'm going to take it back from them. And that creates that sort of competition where you're never sort of uh, on the downturn, you know? Well, maybe uh, he should factor in a little bit more. And this is not being not being hypercritical. Right. This is such a young team. I don't know that those guys really need rest. Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I right. don't need any rest at, at that age. So, I, so he, this rotational thing uh, upsets a lot of it. And uh, and I, I don't think that those guys necessarily yeah, – yeah, if you see a guy who's – yeah, you could tell his ankle sore. Or if you see a guy that, you know, you could just kind of tell in training that, you know, he's done too many transatlantic flights or too much travel. Right. Yeah, I, I, you know, pick and choose. But to wholesale change a team – Mm -hmm. uh, just doesn't make sense to me when they're that young. I mean, they, they, they've got, yeah, they should run forever. Exactly. Well, well, yeah, it, 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 yeah. And it, you know, and it reminds me of one other thing, uh, which has changed a lot. Well, there's, when I played in the NASL, it was wonderful, especially for Ron Newman, which I did for three seasons, basically. If your team won, he never made a change for the next game. Right. 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 Why mm -hmm. Right. 
why should you got your, your you if, got your groove going man you got if, your groove if, going. if it ain't broke why fix it mm-hmm. and uh, and you knew that i'll tell you what you knew that when the whistle blow blew you knew if we win i'll play the next game right oh, that's nice and, and so you you just made sure your team won at Ron a couple of times, never played from, but, uh, but yeah, so I th- that's a really good point. You know, young guys, especially they can play forever. We do this show right now. Uh, Ty, we're all going to have to take a nap afterwards. That's what happens <laughs> to us. So, Hey pal, man, I-, I can't tell you how fun it's been getting caught up with you again. Uh, as I said, my daughter goes to wash you. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to look you up when I'm there for graduation. And uh, oh, uh, definitely. Definitely. I can walk, walk down the street to over to uh, where I've coached for 10 years. It was we love the neighborhood and we, we've been here. We've been in the same house for 34 years. So oh, it's, it's a beautiful tremendous. area. Beautiful it's area. great to see you, Flinter. And, yeah. uh, you know, you're, you're doing an awesome job. So uh, great to talk right. to you guys. Ah, it was great getting caught up with Ty Keogh. God, he's the guy's a legend, man. And he's been, he's done it all, seen it all. And uh, it's really nice to get his perspective. I love, I love the fact that he wants to just play the guy's they're young enough to play the whole game. Forget the juggling of the, you know, the roster and all that stuff. Just play the guys who are in form. I agree and with I, that. And I, and I love the fact that, you know, he kind of mirrored kind of how I feel about the broadcasting. Like, yeah, so college players are now starting to be foreigners coming over, taking scholarships. I, I get it. I say they want to win. I get but, you know, his mother is Mexican. And yet I thought whenever I say, do I have to listen to a guy whose second language is English? Um on a broadcast in America, I just, I feel like, am I saying something anti-Hispanic? No, I, I don't feel like, I just feel like it's not, it's sort of just not representative. Like I don't understand it. The authenticity thing with England, we finally got out of that. And then we go into the Hispanic thing. I just, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. And so. I think he touches on a really important point tactically that I've kind of hinted at before, which is just that the U S is, Hey, thanks for getting me out of that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Very good at, you know, playing on the front foot and sort of being the big dog in a lot of these CONCACAF games, but when they really have to hunker down and, you know, grind out a result, it gets a little, it gets a little slippery and they don't have the talent at the back to do that. I don't, I, I don't know how I much, I don't think it's yeah. a talent. I don't think it's a talent thing. I think it's a tactical and it's a mentality thing. And I think, you know, going to the world cup, it's going to have to change. Cause you're just going to go up against teams that have the ball, you know, 75% and Sam, and, of the game. Yeah. And Sam, that's where the Italians thrive. Right. I mean, just that toughness, like they, they're going to win the games. They're going to do what it takes. And I think sometimes yeah. this team got so cocky in a way that they're sort of like, no, we're not going to tie. We got to win everywhere. We got to look at the back yeah. four of Italy. Uh, Flinny, that's talent. That's talent and strategy. If you don't have the talent, you can't do the strategy. Man, I, I look, ha- half our guys are playing overseas, Grail. So, I mean, you know, you got but, playing for but, Barcelona. Right. Brooks and they're playing, playing with guys that are infinitely better on their foreign teams. And then they're coming back and they're playing for the U.S. men's national team where their player, the surrounding players are not nearly as good. I think the problem with the U.S. national team was not the defenders, not the back. They just couldn't put the ball in the net. And I think we go back, we've always been able to defend. You go back to the Lexi Lawless times or the Mooch Marinix. You know, we always had big central defenders that could play the game. And it, it you know, it got us, uh, you know, through certain games, that's for sure. So I think, I think we have the talent now. Um, I think, uh, you know, not the experience that uh, a lot of other players have, but I, I don't, I just don't see the national team pinning it on the back four. I really don't. So, I'm not, no, I'm, I yeah. wasn't pinning it on them. All right, so hey, thinking about the national team and Pulisic, he's back in training. Uh, I guess he played for Chelsea yesterday. Uh, Grail, did you watch the game against Mamo? Uh, yeah, he got a he he got a little bit of time. Um, I, you know, again, I just think they're so nervous. Yeah. About you know about getting him back. You know, obviously he hasn't trained since August with Chelsea, so it's not like he's been doing much. And then he got injured in that Honduras match. So I don't know. I mean, you know, I just hope for the best for him. I'm just, I'm really concerned uh, about the, the, the nonstop injuries. And, and does Burr Halter call him up? I, I don't know. I think you have to call him up because even, uh, you know, putting him into the 70th minute, he can have an impact. What uh, is yeah. unfortunate though, we all know as players, some of this, you know, incredibly skilled, gifted, he's a gifted skilled player. I mean, you know, yeah. kind of a, he's our Landon now and, or Dempsey. And yet he's, you know, the old term, and it's kind of derogatory, but it's a China doll. The certain yeah. guys who would always get hurt in training, it was always the same guys. And so it's nothing against them. It's just that the body's not built for that sort of thing. Like, look, yeah. at, the sh- look at the shit that Messi takes. And yet the guy just is, is you know, solid and to the ground. And Some guys are lucky too, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And he's so, not. So, um, Conte, back in the loop, your boy. Yeah, yeah. Really? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I'll make this very brief because this has been reported uh, to death. But yeah, he's back in at Spurs. Spurs could have had him over the summer. He was their first choice. He wanted more control. Daniel Levy, the owner, didn't want to give it to him. So they got oh, now he's really got control. Well, they got their fifth choice, who was Nuno Espirito Santo. And that just, you know, it just didn't work from the get go. So I feel oh, yeah. I feel sorry for anybody who gets sacked. But if I'm a Spurs fan, I'm very happy that Conte is coming. In. Well, he might be able to steady the ship, but I, I feel bad for Nuno because he comes in with, you know, that whole summer of Kane thing going on. And yeah, they underachieved when they had all the players. Lots of guys left. Kane wanted to leave. Uh, they lost the coach, Bacchettino. Then, then, poor, you know, poor Nuno comes in, man. And you know, you wouldn't know it. I mean, he could win a World Cup, and the guy would still look like, uh, you know, it, it, there's a gas leak in the room. You know, it's never a good sign when, towards the end of the match, the crowd is going, "You don't know what you're doing." Oh yeah, you don't a bunch know of drunk. What you're doing. Yeah, Nuno doesn't know what he's doing. A bunch of drunk English people. Yeah. <laughs> oh sure. All right. I got. It. I got it. No, so, he made a sub. He made a sub that made absolutely no sense. So anyway. Sam, what do you think of Conte? I mean, I think his track record speaks for itself. I mean, I think everywhere he's gone, he's won, basically. He hasn't always done it in the most entertaining manner. Um, I'm not a big fan of him on a personal level, but I'm not going to argue with, uh, you know, what he's done. personal. Why? What is it? You date your girlfriend uh, or something, whatever. I just don't think he's very personable or relatable. Um, he's not the kind of manager I'd like to play for because his systems are very, very strict and they don't, you know, allow for a lot of creativity and kind of flair. But, you know, he wins everywhere he goes. Good luck to him. If I was given a chance, I would play for Conte. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, and a lot of players say good things about him. It's not like Mourinho. You know, he's not one of these guys where people are just like have to go to therapy after they play for him. Hey, so uh, Champions League, um, Lewandowski, Ronaldo still putting up some numbers. They're incredible. I mean, Lewandowski scored a hat trick. He missed a goal. He could add four, and he he's he scored eighty. He's now scored eighty-one goals in a hundred Champions League matches. That's who, pretty good. Who was this against? Do we want this to say? is well. This, oh, oh yeah, I'm sorry. So they they beat Benfica, they beat Benfica five two. Okay. And he he had a hat trick and he missed a penalty. But I'm just saying, yeah, I mean, I've tip of the hat to both Ronaldo and Lewandowski. I mean, in terms of Champions League, they are just money. Let's see how many goals Lewandowski would score with Newcastle. That's what I want to know. Uh, he, I, I respect that guy, the player, man. He's got game for sure. Yeah. So, uh, all right. It's it might be, it might be at Newcastle in a few years. I'm with you, Sam. Yeah, a lot of, yeah, a lot of money, right. I'm with you, Sam, on the group stage. It's it, there's there's so much shit going on. It's just hard to keep my head just spins. There's too many games going on. I like when it all gets down to like the knockout stage. Hey, uh, let's bring it domestically, guys. Uh, before we wrap up here, um, Bo Dewar, who writes for uh, Soccer America, one of our sponsors, uh, the paper of record in the soccer world. Uh, interesting article about uh, maybe MLS getting rid of the soccer playoffs. Sam, what do you think? Yeah. So he makes the point that, you know, we talked about the leagues cup, which is coming in 2023, which is going to be this one month, you know, Liga MX MLS knockout tournament. Uh, And he says basically that now that that's going to be part of the whole, whatever pyramid here, that uh, there's no point anymore in having an MLS, uh, you know, cup playoff. And we should just have the winner of the Western conference versus the Eastern conference uh, at the end of the season for MLS cup. And that essentially like everywhere, there's too many tournaments, too many competitions, whatever, and something eventually is going to have to give. So this is his solution. Um, I like that idea. Grail. Um, I will give the media perspective on this and Don Garber would just basically say no effing way because more games means more revenue. And well, they I have another I, tournament I, in the mix, right? And, and no, no, but it's just, but I mean, the, the fact is when they negotiate their deals, they're around X number of games. It's why the NFL added a 17th game. It's why MLB added wild card games. It's why champions league is going to end up in, uh, by the right. way, guys, we may not like any of this, but it's all about oh the my TV God. money. It's like politics. It's like not, not, not do the right thing. Do what makes more money. I guess. No, I mean, Bo has a noble idea. It's just absolutely. There's no way they're going to look at, at, at generating less revenue by cutting back on games. Yeah, but the other thing is these players are getting worn down. I mean, there's uh, yeah. you know, a lot of games, a lot of things to play. I so, see all uh, of it. I agree. All right. So, uh, all right, guys, that's it. But uh, we got something else before I get. Well, I did. I did want to mention Jesse Marsh really quickly. I feel like, you know, I'm trying to keep 
that dream going, but um, he's really struggling at Leipzig this season. Um, and after today's Champions League draw with PSG 2-2, it's actually a pretty good result. Uh, they're at last place in their group with just one point, and they're eliminated from you know the Champions League. They might sneak into Europa League. And uh, to make matters worse, our RB Salzburg, where he left, obviously, is having an, a really good year and are probably going to advance to the to the last 16 for the first time in their club history. So there's already some voices out there suggesting that their manager, Matthias Yasle, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, oh, oh, yeah. uh, could be... Person. You can't pronounce his name correctly Flitty, in the Flitty proper language. The difference, Sam. Just oh. roll it. God, you're a bad person. You can't say a name in in uh, an Eastern European name. Terrible. Anyway, the rumors that he could be, you know, on his way to Leipzig sooner rather than later. So what I'm really curious to see is what happens basically next for Marsh, whenever Jesse that Marsh, is. Yeah. Not because I think he's going to get fired in the middle of the season, but you know, eventually he's going to move on from Leipzig, whether it's you know having done well or having done poorly. And the question is where do you go once you're outside the Red Bull umbrella, right? Which has sort of been protecting him through this whole thing. And, Probably come uh, home. Probably come home, I would imagine. Yeah. Maybe MLS or maybe national team after Grail fires Barhalter. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I haven't said fire Barhalter. I just want a little bit more creativity. That's it. All right. Good stuff. So anything else, guys, before we get going here? So Anson Dorrance, our, the friend of the broadcast, I just wanted to quickly say uh, on behalf of the three of us, congrats on win number 900 last week. They beat, uh, or was the week before last, they beat Notre Dame. So just in context, the next closest coach in wins in D1 women's soccer is a guy named Len Santiris, who's at 570 wins. So 570 versus 900, then plus also Anson won 172 uh, matches as the men's coach at UNC. So oh, he was the man during the 80s. I mean, he he's got to, you know, he's got to be the best college coach ever. I mean, if you go just on the record, the best college coach ever. I think, any sport, male yeah. or female. Oh, really? In yeah. any sport? Any sport, male or female. If you look at the numbers, I don't think anybody can compete with that. Beats out Woody Hayes, you think? In your John Wooden? No, Woody Hayes? Oh, John Wooden. No, I was kidding. John Wooden could be in the same argument. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm saying Woody yeah. Hayes. <laughs> Woody that was Hayes a joke. Was it didn't busy, go anywhere, guys. Too busy punching people on the sidelines. <laughs> I know. It's hysterical. Yeah, exactly. Another time. Now you yeah. can't even say anything to a player. and They'll, they'll sue your ass. So, uh, all right. Well, that was great. It was great getting caught up with Ty. Uh, Sam, you might be a little too young to remember Ty Keo, but but Grail and I, we grew up watching that. <laughs> I love the way we game. always say that to Sam. Like no, because in, look, like he's in a stroller or something. No, but I said like the things that you had to overcome as an American player, you yeah. had to just squeeze out anything you could for, for some knowledge. Now these kids have great training facilities, good stuff. I, I don't want to sound like the old, you know, grumpy old man, but it was like, Guys like Ty Keo just really, and his dad even took the beach for us. They they made what what is now possible possible. So and uh, you had to wear mullets and tight shorts. Think about that. Well, it worked. It worked, especially <laughs> in San Diego in the summer. I'll tell you that. All right, everybody. That's all the time we have on over the ball today for Sam Griswold and Grail Hallett. I'm Kevin Flynn. We'd like to thank our guest uh, Ty Keo for uh, jumping on and and uh, talking about uh, the past, the present, and the future in this great game that we all love. We'll talk to you next time, everybody, on OTB.